0: Hi, this is Dan Mendes from NextGen and I'm really excited to be introducing uh, this next podcast with Julia Cheek, founder and CEO of EverlyWell. NextGen invested in EverlyWell about six months ago and is thrilled with the progress to date. Everlywell offers at-home health tests. So, if you want to know about your cholesterol levels, your metabolism, uh, are, are do you have any vitamin deficiencies? Everlywell is uh, the product uh, for you. Julia and I talk about why the at the uh, health test industry um, is so unfriendly to consumers, such a terrible experience for so many people. What Everlywell is doing to change that, and also the incredible effort um, that uh, Julia puts into. Uh, her company and building uh, for its success. So I think you'll really enjoy this. Uh, and here's Julia Cheek and Everly Well. Julia Cheek, thanks for spending a little time with me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So Julia, you're, you're building a consumer uh, company. Uh, I'm a consumer of your product. Last night, I ordered your metabolism uh, test. Uh, tell me what I should expect.
1: Yeah, so at Everly, well, we're really excited about being able to bring a seamless experience that I think people expect now with um, what's developed in other uh, startup verticals over the last few years. And we're bringing that to lab testing, um, a super big industry, something everybody has to do. That's a really annoying and unfulfilling process today for people who matter the most, which is you. Um, so what we've done is completely transformed how you typically think about getting your labs run. So instead of having to wait in a waiting room, getting a form from a doctor, scheduling time at a lab, driving to the lab, and then maybe getting your results, maybe getting a call, maybe not. Um, we've taken all those pain points out of the process. So today, um, you can go on our website order any number of 15 different kits, um, both lab testing and now genetic kits as well, and get that kit shipped to you, collect your sample at home on your time very easily, and send it back in the U.S. mail and get beautifully designed, um, informative results in five days. Um, So this is for everything from food intolerance testing to hormone testing to heart health um, and everything in between. And so we're really excited about how this model can bring convenience to a very needed service, a very clinically Important service, um, but something that you know is is really annoying and frankly not useful and too expensive for the average consumer today.
0: Yeah, so lab testing is really painful. I've gone through that. Everyone has gone through that. Why is it so bad? Uh, what 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 has taken? Why is this industry taken so long? And, and the, the incumbents still are treating you know their the people who are want you know wandering through their doors like they don't matter that much.
1: You know, I think this is indicative of uh, the machine of broader healthcare in the country. And I think that lab testing has been in the past for, you know, the last 50 years considered something that your doctor orders when they're trying to pinpoint an issue, which is still an important function of lab testing. But what's changed is that there are uh, established panels that you can use and take to your physician um, to manage your health and wellness whether it's vitamin deficiencies or even something like a thyroid condition um, that don't necessarily require that physical visit to get the form from your doctor and obviously um, this is something that other industries have already disrupted with e-commerce and I think that healthcare typically is slowest moving um, and so a lot of the incumbents um, they're brick and mortar driven they're driven by um, shared revenue between the hospitals systems and occasionally physician practices, and they haven't had the need to change. Now, I think what's critical that has developed this need, um, and frankly, our company wouldn't have worked um, a decade ago. It's these changes that have happened in the last five years with the consumer cost burden. So now you have people saying, I want my results because I had to pay for them out of pocket or, you know, I had to put them towards my deductible and you charged me $500 and nobody told me how much it was going to cost. And I don't even know what you tested for. And that, experience, that demand from the consumer didn't exist five years ago when you walked in, your insurance covered it and you didn't worry again about it. And so, you know, while this is really what I consider a market force driven change for consumers based on cost, um, I actually think it's really powerful. I think it's going to force people to care about the data, to care about the experience and to demand more from their providers and from lab tests. And so I think that's why you're seeing the shift now versus, you know, the experience that you would have had even five years ago. Um, And, you know, we think, We're on the forefront. We've been kind of the first mover. We have the platform play established, but you can certainly see this starting to develop in other testing areas. Um, And I think you're going to see this model really take hold um, throughout the country in the next five years.
0: I want to go back to why there's the opportunity. So, if if I've got it right, you're saying uh, you know, ten years ago, you would have been competing with free, effectively, or $10 copay or something uh, something along those lines, and people are willing to suffer the inconvenience uh, to. Uh, to get it at that cost. But now with rising deductibles, um, you know, you're know you able to come in at a price point that's similar, lower. I'm curious um, you know, where that falls. And it may dep- obviously depend on your insurance coverage and so forth. But you're able to come yep. in at, at a competitive price point and give this radically greater level of convenience because it's at your at your home, because the your your the information you get afterwards is intended for for consumers and, and lay lay people and, and not for doctors. Is that is that a fair assessment? It's because of these rising deduct uh, the, the rise in the in the deductibles?
1: It is absolutely the result of rising deductibles and um, individuals uninsured. So and potentially even more coming down the pipeline very, very soon with with uh, policy change. So what we have is in the last six years, deductibles have increased 70%. The percentage of an individual's income going towards out-of-pocket expenses has increased by 15% from where it was. And so what you have, you know, uh, I think 90% of families now are on some form of a high deductible plan, which is defined um, as $2,000 or more deductible per year. And so what you have is individuals saying, I never meet my deductible. I don't consider that spending towards my healthcare. That's an out of pocket expense for me. Or I may have an HSA or FSA, which is still out-of-pocket. And so they're saying, okay, I don't even know what I'm spending my money on. And so you have this economic mismatch where you walk into a LabCorp facility or a Quest They put a hold on your credit card. They can't tell you how much that test costs until they get insurance reconciled. And you're the one responsible for that payment, even if it goes towards your deductible. And so you're seeing these market forces shift consumer behavior in a way that I don't think motivating people to care about their health Um, Is going to happen without that economic factor. Our test today, I mean, listen, our mission is to be very accessible for every American. We want to be at, you know, a $30 price point, a $40 price point where people don't even feel like they have to use insurance, or it's not even a comparison with insurance. Today, we're a little higher just because it's our first year and we're trying to reach scale. But even at a higher price point today, which ranges today from $69 to $399, our prices, if you compare individual panels, are almost always than average insurance coverage. And so that's really powerful because even a company that's new that doesn't have the economies of scale of the incumbents is able to offer more price competitive products. And I think that tells you a lot about where this industry needs to go.
0: So, uh, so companies over time often can drive cost out of their product and, and drive down their prices, which is better for their consumers. What uh, you were talking about, 30 or $40, that's a pretty significant uh, change from, from where, where you are today. So I think I, you know, I, I, I'm on the hook for 200 bucks or something like that from the metabolism panel that I ordered. How do you get it down so low or how, you know, how do you think that will happen over time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first the first comment is we have some really incredible lab partners. Um, and when you think about where we are from a scale standpoint, even with our individual labs, we're still today a pretty small part of their business. Um, and so as we start to scale, and as we look at our channel partners that we're expanding into opportunities in brick and mortar, opportunities with um, other health and wellness companies, those volumes are uh, already guaranteed with our partners to bring our prices down significantly. Um, and, you know, we're able to actually scale. Scale with that. So, you know, we we are a technology business first and foremost. We've built really unique products to be able to scale easily without additional headcount, and you know, being able to get those economies of scale as we um, get more volume. And so. We have 15,000 customers today. Uh, imagine when that number is 10x, and you know, being able to achieve the vertical integration that we need um, on the prices. It's a it is a high margin business today. We want everyone to be able. We want our goal is to deliver our customers with a high quality product at a competitive price point, and for everyone to be able to stay in business and make money from that. And this is an industry where that can happen. And that's what's really exciting about innovation in the business model as well. Um, it doesn't have to just be in the delivery. We can also do it. in in our infrastructure.
0: You mentioned a uh, potential move into retail. So right now I, I can only get an Everlywell Everly well kit, you know, online on, on the website. Um I think you've had some other distribution partnerships, but you know, what would that look like? You know, am I can I go to my CVS or my Walgreens, you know, f- uh, 5 years from now to two, 5 months from now and uh, pull an Everlywell uh, t- uh, test off the off the shelf?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is our goal. Again, our vision is to be mass market. We're not focused on quantified self-consumers. We're not focused on um, professional athletes. We are focused on our average customer, which is the mom who has three kids who can't get to the doctor and is looking for a solution to fit into her everyday life where she lives and works for her family. And that consumer is um, needs multiple options. Many of our consumers will choose to purchase online, but they also need to be able to run into the store and pick up a test. I mean, I think you know one of the values that we have is you can walk into a brick and mortar today and you can buy, if you're over 18, you can buy as many cigarettes as you want. You can buy as much soda and you can't get A metabolism test or a thyroid test off of the shelves, and to me that is a great discrepancy in how we're thinking about um, health more broadly for the American population. Um, And so it's it is so important to me that as you're buying a vitamin D supplement, you can also buy a vitamin D test on the shelf. And I think that that is where we really get the brand recognition, and we also educate the broader American consumer base that this testing method is available to you, and it's a way to be able to get more information about your health issues. You know, today. We sell online, and it's going. We're growing very quickly, but we still believe that ninety nine percent of the broader population doesn't even know that this model exists, and that it's accurate, and that it's reliable, and it's an, it is a choice for them. And so, we want to get on shelves to be able to educate consumers about that choice.
0: Yes, I, I want to go back to the question of why that doesn't exist today, and there are obviously some some structural elements of uh, health care, health insurance that are you know not terribly amenable to innovation generally, but. But the shelves of a CVS, right, are open, right? That you know you can you can get a, mm-hmm. a Coke or a Pepsi or or a Snickers bar or whatever or vitamin D supplement or whatever it else. So what well, you know uh, you know I, I happen to know that you know historic, you know I've had low vitamin D and so I take vitamin D to to overcome that. Um, uh, but, but because because at some point some lab corp somewhere gave me some some uh, you know tests that that spit that out. It'd be great if that were more convenient, more accessible for everyone. Why isn't that true today?
1: Um, I think today, you know, you can actually think about, there's there's this incredible New York Times magazine article that I highly recommend, it was published last summer, and it was about the process of getting the at-home pregnancy test on shelves and making it ubiquitous. And what was so fascinating was the technology for that home product was developed almost two decades before it got on shelves. And it was because people were scared. People were scared about what women would do with the information. They were nervous about women being able to handle the information. And then I think you can apply that same case study as what happened with HIV testing um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, where it's it's quite common to be able to get a quick HIV um, test kit on the shelf at a drugstore. And so to me, you look at these very impactful products that you can already buy today, but you also have to think about the change process that it took to overcome current perceptions to get those products on shelves. And so we really believe we're following that same change process. Um, and that the reason they haven't existed before is because of a variety of different um, regulations, whether they're federal, whether they're lab regulations, or whether they're state, that have made it difficult to create a model that worked. And the reason we can do it today is because of internet technology. I mean, it's completely transforming how healthcare professionals work with lab testing regulations. And so where you wouldn't before have been able to buy a kit on a shelf, you can today. And now we just have to create the um, change management, both with the cons- with the retail brands and with the consumer, to help them know that this is available. Um, so I think you're very much going to see that past process with other products be mirrored in Everly Wells' approach to getting on shelves. I mean, And I do think it'll be faster. It's just becoming a more more acceptable process.
0: Well, I certainly hope it's faster. I mean, I, I remember I got uh, you know the twenty three and Me test with my wife. Five years ago, I thought it was spectacular, right, uh, to to learn about you know my my own you know genetic code and what that means for my long term health. And uh, my wife apparently would be deeply addicted to cigarettes if um, if she uh, she apparently her genes yeah. just love cigarettes. But luckily, she you know she doesn't smoke. So that that is really great to know. And then about a year later, the FDA basically cut that off um, because I'm not entirely sure why. Because people might misinterpret the information or, or something along those lines. And so that was very disappointing to me when the FDA sort of took 23andMe to, to a large degree offline. Uh, you know, wh- where are, you know, what, what, what could be done today at a policy level or a perception level to, you know, make this all go faster?
1: Yeah, excellent question. And I think what's most important here is that, you know, Everly Well and the companies in this space, whether it's DNA testing or, you know, at-home lab testing or direct-to-consumer uh, brick-and-mortar testing, have a whole host of different regulations, both at the state and federal level that are carefully navigated in order to bring our products to market in an effective way. And I really have to credit 23andMe for what I believe was 10 years at this point, they've been around a decade, a major regulatory hurdle and a major consumer adoption hurdle that they really took the burden on. Um, and I think it's massively changed the landscape for, for companies like us that are able to do it now much more quickly. I do think from a a policy change. I mean, there are several states today where companies like us in the space can't operate. New York, New Jersey, um, Rhode Island, Maryland. And those are big markets. They're big markets that need um, the industry to come together. And there's several different legislation pieces we have to influence, everything from lab permitting to uh, payment processes for consumers to be able to purchase their own lab tests. So it's not going to be a, a quick, process. And I think it's something that we absolutely need to change. I also think that, um, direct to consumer testing from a, a uh, permission perspective is regulated state by state. And so today, we actually follow uh, the strictest state regulations for every state so that we don't have uh, multiple policies in multiple states. Um, But I think that that's something where uh, consumers across the country need to be able to get access to these products in the same way, um, and simplifying that will make it easier uh, to get them access. So those are the two main things up front. I also think you'll see a shift. I mean, the FDA has already kind of shifted in terms of how they're commenting on their monitoring of digital Health and wellness apps. Um, It is critical that the claims that these companies make to consumers are accurate and not diagnostic. Um, That's something that we are very careful about um, and have a team of lawyers and medical professionals that help us with. Um, So I think it serves a really important purpose because you don't want consumers getting inaccurate or um, information or claims that are not accurate or fair to be made to them. Um, But I think that once we have that line, it's important to allow these products and innovation out there because consumers are looking for easy solutions and the current, the current healthcare um, kind of machine is not serving it. Um, so I think they've taken a good line, but we'll see how it changes over the next few years.
0: That machine uh, of healthcare includes insurance. When I went to uh, buy me- that metabolism panel, uh, there was nowhere that said, you know, you know, do you have insurance? You know, plug in your insurance number, right? It was just plug in your credit card number. Uh, curious um, if you, over time, would like to get, you know, have have these tests be reimbursed by insurance, or is the the idea let's just try to drive the cost down so far that you know it doesn't even make sense to to, uh, to go through that.
1: So. Our entire mission from a platform standpoint and why we think Everly Wells platform play is so important is because we want to be an agnostic channel partner. So that means any type of enterprise business that needs our testing services will be able to work with you. That's already paying off with a variety of channel partners outside of retail and even outside of um, corporate wellness that we're really excited about. I think one of the challenges is how and when to provide that channel partnership to traditional insurance companies. Um, There are certainly reasons why they need people to test more frequently and more often. There is a major compliance issue with lab testing because it's so inconvenient. Mm. inconvenient. And stats vary by state, but they go from 40% to up to 60% of people never get that piece of paper actually fulfilled. Um, That data is really important both to doctors but also to insurance companies. so we've been approached because of our model to be able to bring that level of compliance with our platform um, to traditional insurance companies. Now, from a reimbursement standpoint, I think the story is different. Um, I don't know that it will be worth uh, to our company or to the consumer working with them for traditional reimbursement. Certainly not across all of our panels. There's potential with a few of them where we may go through the traditional system. I think our model is, you know, again, we're thinking about the consumer. How do we make this accessible and affordable for every consumer? And our focus is really on what's the best path to do that that makes us successful and provides a great consumer experience. And today we're not, we're not um, banking on the fact that that's through traditional insurance. We think it's through other models.
0: Got it. You mentioned you've been approached by insurance companies. You've also also are being approached by venture capital firms. Um, so you've sort of come out of the gate pretty fast here. You mentioned you had uh, fifteen thousand uh, customers already. Uh, Next Gen is very proud, pleased to to be an early investor in what you're doing. But there's going to be other investors over time. Uh, and as I guess as those inquiries come in and, and people say, you know, saying, hey, hey, Julie, I want to I want to throw you some money. How do you think about um, you know uh, who who to partner with uh, on the financing side? Obviously, valuation is a question. but beyond valuation, uh, what are you looking for? and, and before you answer, I should, I should just say, I you know I've been I've been doing this for about a decade uh, investing in, in early stage companies and I think you are probably the most sophisticated first time entrepreneur I've ever worked with on financing questions. So um, so I'm I'm curious you know what you know what you know how do you think about it uh, and uh, and you know is that you know universal or do you think that's specific to you and other other firms should think about it um, differently or is it just sort of a universal principles there.
1: Um, well, first of all, thanks for the compliment. I think it's because I have a great, great team around me that have. Uh, I, I know where what I don't know and try to educate myself as quickly as possible. So I really appreciate that compliment. Um, for me, I think what's very, uh, when you're very early in fundraising and when you're pre-seed um, or even post-seed, but you know, pre-Series A. You want to take any funding opportunity from a legitimate venture capital firm or other funder. And I think where I've really had to be strategic is thinking about Everlywell as an investment opportunity for a VC and not just me trying to make sure that I can raise money. and. What that has done for the company is, I think, created a set of partners that are aligned with our vision, excited about what we're doing, and also aligned with the stage of the company and um, willing to kind of uh, be supportive during these early days. Um, so that's more of a philosophical point. but. Um, for me that's been my focus as opposed to saying hey i'm out there trying to get money and selling and selling rather saying i want to develop a relationship with these funders i mean dan as you know i developed a relationship with john over the last year with him coming into the offices you know every quarter and getting the company update and that not only allowed him to see how we were progressing and executing, but it allowed me to understand what the relationship would be like with NextGen. Um, and ultimately, I wanted to have you all on board because I saw the value that you would add. And that's how I felt about every partner that we've brought on. I think from an uh, actual funding strategy standpoint, um, I'm very balanced when I consider valuation. I actually sometimes get more concerned about overvaluing versus Um, undervaluing because I think that you can uh, block yourself in from having optionality. And my goal is always to create optionality for the company. So, you know, I want to be sure that I'm fair to current shareholders, but I also want to be sure that we're not um, raising it so high of a valuation that we then remove some of our potential partnership opportunities, some of our potential exit opportunities, or the chance to really think strategically about how we want to create our funding path for the future. So, you know, every time I've raised a round, and I'm now three rounds in, um, I say, What options does this leave us on the table? So if we have to make adjustments, can we do that? Um, And that, of course, goes into who we choose to partner with. It goes into the funding structure of the deals. Um, But I think it's the most important question you have to ask at this early stage because the more choices you remove, um, the more you define your path, and you need to be able to stay open to different directions at this stage um, from from a financing standpoint. And so I think we've been able to do that well. You know, we're now considering things. I mean, as we look at retail, how do we think about lines of credit? How do we think about about, um, you know, working with our investors to create different funding mechanisms uh, that allow us to scale in a way that we haven't before. Um, And that matches with where our business model is going. And so I think you have to know where you're going strategically and who you want as partners um, before you can make some of those different financing choices.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting that I think a lot of entrepreneurs uh, focus on venture as the primary or sole source of financing, and often there are other sources of financing. And for example, if you're sitting on a retail shelf, there probably there probably your product is there probably other sources of financing other than selling equity uh, to to a venture capital firm. But I actually want to push back mm-hmm. um, on, on something. So you you said <laughs> sure. that. Uh, you, know, you, uh, you know, you'd want to develop relationships with potential sources of financing, and you were you know, meeting quarterly with, with my partner, uh, John, over, over a period of time. And I, John is a fantastic guy, and I think anyone should want to meet with him quarterly, but, but you know, you, that's, that's time. Uh, and, you know, I think most entrepreneurs will say, well, shoot, I've got sales, I've got product, I've got marketing, uh, and and you know I might end up meeting with John once a quarter and the deal doesn't happen. So that means I have to meet with five Johns or 10 Johns once a quarter. That is a ton of time. Uh, how do you think about that issue?
1: Um, it's a great point, And I will say one of my biggest lessons has been in actually not taking VC meetings, um, not because I'm not interested, but because fundraising is just not my priority at certain points in time. And I have to be able to be very stringent about my, my time rules or else I'll have no control. Um, And we are building major products, major functionality, tons of channel development, which is where my time needs to be spent. You know, in the case specifically of next gen, we had no institutional money in the company um, until our last round of funding. And so a lot of what I was also doing was testing. I would say, you know, where do you think VCs uh, expect for a Series A from a monthly revenue standpoint? How about recurring revenue? How important is that factor? Um, How important is the data strategy? Um, How do you value um, an e-commerce company? How do you think about our tech? And so as much as I was sharing with John the execution updates, he was also sharing with me industry Experience from like you Dan having been a VC investor for a decade, um, and so there was a mutual kind of learning there that I think was really important, and you know in most cases that doesn't it's it's not the same relationship right i'm pitching i'm saying hey i'll follow up with you when we 're fundraising um, and i've actually after our last round put a hold i've said, look we don't even have a deck we're retelling our series A story. let me get back to you in the fall when I have something to share and i'm ready to take control of the process and I think Feeling like the entrepreneur has control of the process and is con- and is creating that timeline that they want, I think, is really important. Um, so it's a fair point. I would also just say I was a little bit, um, a little bit dual purposed in my meetings, perhaps.
0: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we're, we're, we're always good for market intelligence. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I want to uh, ask you about a, a quote. I, I read this in an, uh, I think, an Inc. Uh, article about you. This this is from you, and I'm going to read it word to word because word for word because I think it is striking. Uh, here's what you said. When asked how I maintain a work-life balance, the reality is that I don't. And I do not have a goal to achieve that balance. At this stage, my business is a 24-7 job. And from every founder I've talked to, that does not get any easier with time and scale. So uh, that's... A bold comment right there. <laughs> um, it, it, that you don't even you you don't have a work life balance. You are not trying to get a work life balance. It will be the same next year and the year after and the year after that and the year after that. And you know how you know how do you, how did you choose that path? Which is sounds like a really hard path
1: yeah you know it's funny, um you called out that quote, Dan, because that's the obviously the quote I've had some the most feedback on, um and it was something that you know, I believe everyone should choose the path that works for them, it's not my statement around at all what I think my team needs to do or what other entrepreneurs need to do to be successful. It is, it is what I've accepted. And I think that part of it is frankly quite inherent to who I am. Um, you can ask anyone who's worked with me over different periods in my life, whether it was my equestrian career, college, business school, um, my professional career. And I have generally been all work all the time. I love to work. I love to create success and I love to drive results. Um, and so that's what I love to do. And I think the difference, though, that I will say from having founded my own company versus being in someone else's company um, is it's more of a mentally 24-7 job then I think even working really hard at something else. So like I wake up in the middle of the night I did last night with some thought about something. Um, I'm, you know, on my email first thing in the morning, um, right before I go to bed. And some of that is because I don't have the coverage. Um, so I think that that will change with time. But I think as your leadership team expands, and as you have more hires the issues just change right it's still the same ownership it's still the same emotional commitment um and so it's something you know i'm i'm rather unapologetic about it it's not the perspective that i would push on anyone else um but it's how i operate and it's what's worked for me and you know Ah, uh, my husband is really supportive. Um, he travels for work. He also has an equally demanding job. And so it's just how we've kind of chosen to want to build our lives. Um, and it's what matters to us right now. and and that's not to say that won't change. but whatever it is that I'm committing my time to, I commit myself to fully. Um, and that's just something that I think is is part of how I've grown up. So, um, you know, my I, I was the kid who, in high school, my parents forced me to stop taking as many honors classes. Um, that was just literally who, how I'm built. Um, and so I don't really know any other way to be.
0: Julia Cheek, thanks so much for spending time with me today.
1: Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon.